Hey, Steve, I don't have a number for you today. That's disappointing. Yeah, but today I think we should get into something different. We've had a lot of great discussions on the show about affordable housing policy and innovation, uh, but today let's talk about development. Let's talk about properties and neighborhoods. Let's get into how everything we've been covering over the last year around affordability and innovation gets put into practice and drives change for residents and communities. Well, that sounds great, but I have to correct you. You do have a number. I do? Uh, what is it? Zero. That's the number of numbers you have for me today. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to spend some time at the intersection of policy and practice in affordable housing. We have a really great guest with us today who has a long career of innovating, of furthering affordability and community development, and of furthering opportunity. Ron Molis is the CEO and founding partner of L&M Development Partners, a leading developer of affordable mixed income and mixed use properties in the tri-state area. D.C. and California. And he's had a lot of success in this space. And, and even in 2012, he was named Entrepreneur of the Year for Real Estate by Ernst & Young for his many years of innovation and creativity uh, in real estate finance and development. So it should be a great discussion. And Ron, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let, let's start with a bit about uh, L&M and the background of the firm and, and your development philosophy. How did you get started? So L&M started in 1984. It was... Um, a venture between me and my partner, Sandy Lowenthal. And uh, we decided to get into um, developing and at the time rehabilitating uh, buildings in the, in the New York City area. Um, we started in the East Village of New York City, which at the time was a, an emerging neighborhood, uh, nowhere near as developed as, as it is now. Um, and over the, um, the next 10 to 15 years, we sort of took on um, a role of doing primarily renovation of uh, vacant properties that were, were throughout the city. Um, starting under the Koch administration at the time, uh, there were a lot of uh, distressed uh, properties that the city had taken back in tax arrearages, um, put back out into the market through RFPs, requests for proposals, and developers like us, and we were fairly small at the time, would put in a proposal as to how we would uh, complete a renovation of the property. The city would put some resources in, give us some tax abatements, and we'd commit uh, to affordability, uh, generally ranging from 15 to 30 years of affordability. Um, that sort of got us going, and we, we started um, uh, growing from there and doing new construction projects, developments, um, more, more around mixed income, still some that were 100% low income and, and, and finally getting into a variety of mixed use type projects that were larger and um, even more impactful, but um, uh, tried to focus on uh, community needs and the desire of the people in the communities that we were serving uh, and really set forth a mission that we wanted to be um, real estate developers who could be productive um, and, and change agents in communities that were looking for uh, change and affordability. Uh, that sounds great. It sounds like you've got a breadth of, of kind of experience throughout the different kinds of, of you know, rental real estate and, uh, and, and across time as well. 
Um, maybe you can speak to us about um, some example deals. Sure. Most recently, and <clears throat> these are a couple of examples in um, of mixed income, mixed use developments uh, in the New York City metro area. Um, I'll actually start with one that, uh, and it's an interesting one in a number of ways. It, it, we bought the old Bell Telephone building. It was a Ralph Walker design building built in the 30s. Um, that we bought from Verizon uh, probably about four or five years ago in Newark, New Jersey. It's uh, in the heart of downtown Newark. Gorgeous building, really well-designed, a lot of historic detail. And we um, went about uh, working to uh, design the building as a building that would include uh, retail on the ground floor and even in the basement of that building. Uh, five floors of commercial use, and then uh, about 20 floors of residential mixed income housing above it. Um, we finished construction on the building probably right before the crisis hit, sometime this winter. Uh, we've been in lease up during this pandemic, um, has have been leasing fairly well. Um, it was a historic rehabilitation, um, and we partnered uh, with Goldman Sachs and Prudential as our equity partners. Uh, we financed it through Citicorp, Citibank. We are approximately 90% leased. Um, we have leased all of our retail and the retail uses that are in there. Um, some have moved in, some have uh, been delayed because of the pandemic, but intend to move in this fall. And we're probably about 40% leased on the office space. And we're preparing uh, to convert that building over the next three to six months. And it is really a great example of, of, a, of a historic building. We kept the fabric of the building. Um, we sat, it's, the, the housing, which is about 250 units, is mixed income. There is some uh, low-income affordable housing and some market-rate housing in the building as well. In Newark, uh, most of even the market-rate rate housing is fairly... Um, geared to workforce type housing. So it's pretty affordable in and of itself. And the retail ranges from uh, uses like a, a climbing wall, which we innovatively put in the basement to a coffee shop um, and other uh, community uses. Uh, similarly, the commercial has some nonprofit and community uses as well. So that's an example um, of a recent project that we, one building, but a variety of different uses and income ranges and financing tools that we were able to bring to bear to get um, to get the building developed and built over the last few years. So, Ron, I know, you know, a lot's been going on in, in Newark and there, uh, there's been a lot of investment in Newark. So how, how does uh, this building sort of tie in with what else is going on in the city? So there is a lot going on in Newark. And this building is, as I mentioned, in the downtown area. It follows our first um, development in downtown Newark, which was the Haynes, the old Haynes department store, a similar mixed use, mixed income development that uh, was a historic renovation of, a, of another iconic building that was really in the middle of the heart of Newark. Um, and we feel as part of our philosophy when we're going, especially into new areas. And we started in Newark in probably about 10 years ago. So it's fairly new for us as opposed to places like New York City, where we've been developing for over 30 years. 
we 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 wanted to to work in the downtown area because there were these iconic um, um, game changing projects that really um, brought the attention not only of the government but of the private sector. I mentioned Prudential has been a partner of ours. Goldman Sachs they've been they've been both investment partners and, and philanthropic partners in the downtown area. But we also um, have engaged in Newark in the wards and in the in the neighborhoods that are less developed and had some real distress around some of the lower income housing that had been built 30, 40 years ago. Um, and an example of that is we, we bought and took over a severely distressed property called Georgia King Village, about 450 apartments. It was a, built as a Section 8, um, I think it was a 236 in a HUD program back in the, I don't know, 60s or 70s. Um, the building had been fairly run down. The apartments hadn't been renovated. There was a lot of, um, uh, there was a lack of investment in the property over the past 10 or 20 years. We took it over. We worked with the New, the New, Jersey, New Jersey Housing Agency, um, put together financing and did a major rehabilitation of the property. And it's night and day. Um, the tenancy, the residents of the property are extremely pleased. Uh, we provided some safety measures. We uh, provided a number of green construction and resiliency measures, and we renovated everyone's apartment. So it really took um, a distressed property that was outside the mainstream of downtown Newark, and we put our efforts into properties like that. And there's three or four more in, down, in, in Newark that we're working on that are similar type projects that show that we're we're focused on the mission of improving housing, not only in the downtown area, not only in mixed income uh, neighborhoods and mixed income buildings, but in the uh, more distressed communities with um, lower income buildings as well. That's interesting. And as, as you consider um, uh, mixed income and, and more pure mission or affordable, um, what are the different considerations that you give as you approach these projects? So I think a lot of it is around um, the community itself. Some of it is around what the elected um, officials, uh, the community boards, um, and the government seek to have happen in that community. So we we try not to come in with preconceived notions. We're I think we're thoughtful about what we want to do, and as I mentioned, we we're mission driven. But we're a for profit company that's looking uh, at development. Um, in a way that makes economic sense and makes community sense. So oftentimes we'll either respond to a government issued request for proposal in a, for a specific site or a specific group of sites in a neighborhood. Um, an example of that would be Essex Crossing, um, probably the largest mixed income um, public private development in Manhattan uh, over the past 50 years. And it was the old Seward Park revitalization uh, neighborhood in the Lower East Side of New York. Um, we were selected uh, right at the end of the Bloomberg administration, so probably seven years ago. Um, it was L&M with a couple of partners, uh, along with Goldman Sachs as an equity investor. Um, and we uh, went in, it was nine sites. Uh, we proposed to have every site uh, be mixed income, uh, mixed use with um, community purpose, uh, entertainment uses, uh, food uses, 
there was healthcare involved. There were cultural. We, we put a museum. The um, uh, the International Center for Photography took a large space in the project, and a lot of our response and a lot of our development vision was molded and 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 identified by a large community task force that had worked with the elected officials and at the time the Bloomberg administration over a five-year period and put together a vision statement of what they wanted to see happen uh, on this develop on these on this group of development sites that had been vacant for the better part of 50 years. Um, the city had torn down tenements on these sites in the 60s, intending to rebuild immediately. And because of com- community differences and lack of leadership and confusion, uh, nothing happened for the better part of that 50-year period until the, this community task force was formed. Uh, and I think that is a good, uh, very specific and a good answer to your question, which is, in that case, the 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 electeds led, they put together a community task force. The community task force was, was a, a group of advocates and nonprofits and people who lived in the community and had interest in the community. And they all came to some compromises to what they wanted to see. They were, they were folks who wanted to see 100% affordable housing. There were folks who wanted to see small retail. There were some folks who wanted to see cultural or entertainment uses. They, they, they all compromised, and at the end result, uh, it was a th- over a 1,000 units of housing, and half of it was affordable, and half of it was market rate. Um, cultural uses like Bowling Alley, 14plex movie theater, some big, big uses, but also some smaller uses like a community coffee shop that would um, provide work training to folks in the community. Um, as I mentioned, the museum, an NYU uh, Langone Health Center. So there was a mix uh, of a number of different objectives that were defined in broad scale by a community task force. And we were able to take their recommendations and put it into reality. And I would say that probably 85 to 90% of what they sought to have happen in that neighborhood in in this Essex Crossing um, uh, development actually came came to or is coming to fruition as we're finishing uh, phase two, uh, which is about 85 to 90% of the entire development and about to embark on the last phase probably next spring. That That's really exciting. Um, and, you know, talking talking about the community involvement uh, in your development, is that a common feature of, of most of your developments or at least the bigger ones? Yes. I think that um, it's becoming more and more important. Um, I think that we always... Uh, I, I would say one of the first development projects I worked on, and this was well over 30 years ago, <clears throat> I made a mistake and it was in West, in Northern Westchester County. And we went and we bought a, some land up in a community that um, doesn't need to be mentioned right now because of what I'm going to, what I'm going to say, but we bought a, a large piece of land that was zoned for <clears throat> single family housing Um something like 20 some odd houses on about 70 acres of land. And we really didn't engage a lot with the local community before we bought the land. And once we owned it, we realized that there was a tremendous amount of community interest in that neighborhood, in that community. Um, The fact that we thought houses built on two acres of land was sort of 
uh, spacious and would be desirable. Uh, we found out otherwise that there were concerns and uh, issues around it. We, we ended up spending five years getting approvals and ended up selling the site uh, because by the time we got our approvals, we were in the middle of a economic uh, recession and a downturn in the market in New York City, early 90s. Um, it was one of my early lessons, one of the few times we've actually lost some money on a development. And I realized early on that the community, it was important that, that we get buy-in, that we understood that we work with a community before we go into that community. And, and that's become more and more, um, not only a hallmark of what we want to do, but a necessity, uh, especially working in large cities like New York, um, in, in, and in smaller communities of New York, where the views of some community residents and boards in places like Melrose of the Bronx versus East Harlem versus Bushwick in Brooklyn, um, vastly different goals and objectives, both in terms of housing needs um, and in terms of just general community desire of what they want to see from us as developers. Um, and just to give you a, just a, a contrast, um, there are communities, and I, I, you know, in some parts of the city that want to see uh, workforce housing, everybody wants affordability, um, but the degree to which they want the affordability varies in large part to the, to the voices and the needs of the particular community you're in. And some folks feel like, they want to see very, very low income apartments because that's lacking in their community. Whereas some, some constituencies are looking for more of a mix. They may even want to see some market rate housing because they feel it brings um, some economic uh, growth and um, stimulus to their neighborhoods as well. And over time, those visions and those views have changed. So for example, when I started working in Harlem in the 90s, um, the community board in Harlem wanted to see mixed income housing and was looking for market rate housing and commercial uses that would bring um, investment and stimulus to the neighborhood. Um, when you go into Harlem now, there's much more of a desire to see affordable housing and much more of a concern around issues like gentrification and displacement. And there's much less a call for uh, uh, market rate uh, housing to be built because I think they feel there's a lot of it already being built. So that's just, you know, that's a change over 25 years, uh, but it's been a change that I've been part of and I've seen firsthand. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens post pandemic as we pull ourselves out of the current, um, you know, distress that we're, we're in right now. And you, you just mentioned uh, the, the pandemic and, and earlier in the discussion, you mentioned that, that you were in lease up. Um, how are things right now? And um, do, does it differ um, for affordable versus you know, other segments of the market? So there's a lot uh, behind that question. I'll start with, um, you know, the, the first few months, March, I guess, through June, maybe uh, <clears throat> New York City as we all probably realized went through tremendous uh, pain and distress around um, the pandemic. Uh, the health issues in New York were just exacerbated, were far worse than 
anywhere else in the country. Um, the shutdown was was um, was was dramatic, and we, as owners and managers of some eighteen thousand apartments, which consist probably of close to forty or fifty thousand people who live in those apartments, many of the vast majority are affordable. We're concerned about the livelihood and well-being of the people who live in our buildings. We um, spent a lot of time tracking what was going on in the properties, both from a real estate perspective, but also from a human uh, uh, quality of life perspective. And we worked um, with a number of nonprofits, electeds, and and even uh, on some fairly uh, visible um, initiatives, mostly to feed and make sure that people in our um, developments got access to the necessities, most importantly, food at the time. We have a lot of seniors. There were a lot of people who were ill, um, people who couldn't get out of their homes. I think we, we fed over the first three or four months, hundreds of thousands, maybe up to half a million meals to families in our buildings in places like Newark and Harlem and Brooklyn and, and uh, even in New Rochelle where we're doing some work. Um, on the real estate side, um, we were surprised that the impact wasn't as dramatic in terms of rent payment and rent issues as we thought. We immediately started contacting. We reached out to we we attempted to reach out to every tenant in in our portfolio. I don't know that we reached every single one, but we had a group of people in our management company on the phones for a period of a couple of months, calling folks, reaching out, just trying to get a, an assessment of what the needs were, where there was health issues, where there were economic issues, where we could be helpful, where we should be thinking about working with people on things that we might not expect. Um, we did the same, by the way, for our commercial tenants, uh, for the most part, small retailers, because we have probably 130 retail tenants, the vast majority of whom are small sort of mom and pop shops in the boroughs um, in Newark and places where um, they were hard hit, oftentimes shut down, a lot of restaurants, nail salons, daycare centers. So we reached out to as many of those folks as we could reach as well. And on the residential side, uh, we probably saw um, rents off, rent collections off by five to ten percent. Um, we had done some analysis, thinking it could be up to thirty or forty percent. I think part of that is explained by the fact that many of our tenants are in affordable apartments with below market rents in newer buildings or re- rehabilitated apartments where they want to stay where they are, and they were able to use um, resources that they had, maybe. Um, the enhanced unemployment insurance if they were out of work. Um, a lot of our tenants were essential workers, so they were still working, in some cases maybe even making overtime. So many of them were able to pay the rent. Those that weren't, we, we are still working with. Um, obviously, there's been no eviction procedures, and we um, spent a lot of time during that time frame working with other um, property owners and some nonprofit home-based providers uh, raised uh, a, a, lot, a fair amount of money. I think we're over, we're almost between 10 and $15 million 
do private philanthropy to try to help focus social workers on the needs of tenants, not just in our buildings, but across the city in buildings that house folks of lower income who might have been disproportionately impacted by the events of, over the last six months. So, so we so far have not seen dramatic impact to our portfolio on the residential side that we anticipate that could get worse, especially if Congress doesn't um, get a second act together and pass a, a stimulus package. And on the retail and commercial side, we did see much more distress and our collections were probably off somewhere around 40, 50% across the portfolio. Some of those folks are starting to come back. We are doing everything we can with those retailers and those smaller commercial users who want to come back to either work with them on a rent plan that would um, defer rent or even abate some rent in the hope that we can get these folks back in the neighborhood. They're crucial to the local economy. They're crucial to creating a neighborhood that was vibrant in many of these neighborhoods. You know, after years of, of being distressed in the last 10 or 15 years, they, these neighborhoods have started to become more vibrant and more community driven and have more options for things like healthcare and food and retail choice and job opportunity. So our goal is to um, keep those neighborhoods in, invigorated through the um, efforts of local uh, operators, local retailers, local commercial users, and of course our, re our residential tenants, most of whom are you know, desire to stay in their apartments and we're uh, doing our best to keep in their apartments as well. There's really a lot of great uh, work, it sounds like, that, that's going into this and, and, and a lot of uh, you know, work with the residents and these organizations. How, how does this time, because I mean, you've been in, in business for a long time, how, how does this crisis compare to you know, the, uh, the Great Recession you know, 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago? Well, Look, I've been through, um, I want to broaden that a bit because I have been through, I've been doing this longer than I like to admit. As I mentioned, I started in, in 1984, so sort of gives a perspective. I went through a tremendous downturn in 1980, you know, that began with this, the crash of 87 and really filtered into real estate a year or so later um, and lasted in, in New York City for the better part of five or six years. It was a, a tremendously difficult time um, in general um, in the city, but in particular in real estate. Uh, we also went through a very trying time, uh, as some of us may remember, uh, you know, during the 9-11 period where there was a lot of fear and concern for different reasons, but, uh, you know, that focused around primarily around the downtown part of Manhattan, but but really around the city itself and was it, you know, lasted for, for longer than we think. Uh, we have short memories, but that lasted a couple of years. And then, of course, the financial crisis, which 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 impacted New York. But I will say um, it probably impacted many other parts of the country uh, in a, for a much longer period of time in a more dramatic way. New York um, sort of fought its way out of it over after a few years. I think um, 
the resiliency of the New York City economy at the time, the amount of renters versus homeowners uh, in New York City both contrib contributed to the, um, the city being able to come out of that quicker than many other parts of the country. Um, this situation, obviously, we're still in the middle of, so it's hard to really uh, compare um, fully because no one knows when this will end and how it will end. But uh, the first six months seemed to me to be um, uh, one difference, obviously, is the unprecedented shutdown of everything in the city. I mean, this is not just an economic shutdown. This is a health crisis that's exacerbating the, you know, and creating the economic shutdown. Um, and the longer it lasts and, and, you know, and this started, I think we all thought this will be a couple months and we'll, you know, we'll gradually get back up and running and the city would be back to some kind of normalcy by the end of the summer. Um, that doesn't seem like a realistic view anymore. Um, so the challenges around it are just incredibly difficult. Um, the issues around healthcare versus the economy and versus, you know, job issues and, and economic concerns around the city itself, then merge that with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the concern around, the greater concern around not only inequality in the city, which has been a an issue for a number of years, but about racial and social justice, all that leads me to believe that things aren't going to change quickly in New York City. And I think we have a lot of work to do, maybe more than in any of the crises I've been through, to get back on our feet and become the vibrant city that we have been over the past 200 years and at various times, more or less. Um, but also to, it's a moment in time where I think we can make meaningful change to the way the city runs, operates, um, evolves. Um, and I, I look to that to be sort of some kind of um, new paradigm that doesn't set up a binary uh, system of either uh, gentrification or disinvestment. And I think what we've had in this city for the past 25 years it started with redlining and disinvestment, especially in poor communities. Um, that's what I heard a lot of 25, 30 years ago, um, that banks, that equity developers were ignoring poor neighborhoods. So there was a real push to put resources and effort uh, into neighborhoods that had been um, ignored and had experienced redlining and disinvestment. I think as that occurred, there wasn't enough thought as to what that meant and where that would all take things. And then in the last five to 10 years, we've seen a lot of um, concern about displacement and gentrification. A lot of those concerns in the same neighborhoods that had been, that had suffered tremendously uh, from disinvestment, from, you know, security and poor education and poor health issues. Um, now it was a concern about the folks who had lived in those communities. Where were they going to go? Were they going to be priced out of their own community? Were people looking, you know, unscrupulous landlords at, at times, or even in some cases, was it city policy that was pushing people out of their neighborhoods? So I think the dialogue that I'm hoping happens as a result of what we've learned over the past 30 years 
that, that we can do things better, that we can think about both investment and displacement uh, and opportunity in the same in the same thought process, that we can look at community development as being a way to think about doing things differently, that we can be developers, that we can do development in a way that that understands what's important in communities, that that addresses some of the um, cultural and um, and, uh, and 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 um, social issues that residents of particular communities focus on and care about that we can do mixed income housing that we that we can create economic stimulus and job opportunity but also create a, a place that people who grew up and have spent their lives in certain communities can still stay in those communities so it's not easy and there's no I'm not I don't think there's an there's a um, I don't think there's a, um, a map that can show us exactly there's no right way or wrong way, but there is a better way. And I'm hoping that as we come out of, uh, out of this distress, and it may take some time, that we can all look at the better way and that we can think about this um, with an eye towards the future. Hopefully, uh, we get the federal government that, to help and the local government where there's some stimulus, um, infrastructure type stimulus to put some resources into things like general infrastructure, but also affordable housing and community development that allow us to really take those resources and do this in a uh, 21st century way that reflects community development as opposed to some of the things and some of the issues that we saw over the past um, 30 years or so. That's a great discussion and just, I mean, I think it's clear through through our whole discussion today on on how community development, you know, involves multiple parties and thinking through, you know, what can be difficult issues, but go ahead and, and taking them on, which is, sounds like what you've been doing over a long time. And I'll pick up on something you said earlier too about you know the important topics right now of of, of racial and social justice and uh, how how those have come to prominence lately, and and how you think uh, folks in the real estate industry um, should be thinking about that today. Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good question, and and I think it's particularly important. I mean it's important across the board in all industries. I think we've all started realizing that we all have our own um, uh, systematic racism issues that we have to think about and really get serious about. And um, but in the industry I'm in, which whether you call it affordable housing or community development we are doing a tremendous amount of work in communities of color. And, um, you know, I've thought about this even before the recent events, and we've strived to do better on diversity within the company and also in the communities we build in. Um, And I think we've, we've done okay. We've, we've thought about, we've, 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 we've been uh, thoughtful in some ways, but we can do a lot better. And I think we all need to up our game in terms of, especially in terms of getting women and people of color in leadership positions in our industry in particular. And I'll speak about the industry I'm in. Uh, This probably runs across the board, but um, in doing that, some of that is self-reflection and looking at your own um, company, the status of your company, what, where, where, where you've failed to, to move the needle and where 
you can do better. And some of that is, are things that can be done relatively quickly. A lot of it are things that are going to take time and, and real dedication and patience to, 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 um, to remedy. Um, there are a couple of examples, um, both on the um, sort of what I call the philanthropic or the um, evolution side of things, where we want to start with young people to get people of color and, and in, in particular interested in industries like affordable housing and community development, because a lot of the work we do is in those communities. And I think there's not enough um, outreach in those communities at younger, um, earlier times. So we're working with a group which we've just started working with called Project Destined, um, who works with high school and college students and gets them involved in, in real estate. And we're trying to have they're very interested in being folk, having a, uh, a cohort focused on affordable housing. So we're, we've just started those conversations, um, getting folks involved early on, especially even as early as high school, to see what goes on in their community. And there's there's a lot of um, work and, and, and involvement that gets put into even building a building in a community or building an affordable housing development or, or urban planning or urban design. So that's an area where we're putting some effort and some resources, and it seems like they are doing a great job. They've been operating for a few years, and they're, they're, they've got a great program. Another is a program that I got involved in at the University of Pennsylvania, which is my alma mater, um, the School of Design, um, trying to get more diversity, more people of color into their um, urban planning program and into the master's program there so they can come out and feel like they have a say and a voice. And once they get to that level of uh, education and degree, they really can step into a role, a meaningful role in the urban planning, urban development, urban design process. And we started that about two years ago and that's up and running. And it's an example of uh, providing uh, scholarship and fellowships uh, to folks uh, in particular, people of color who would otherwise not be able to participate in that kind of educational uh, program. So those are early stage um, starts that I think are necessary to get people engaged in the business and get them a background so they can really come in at a senior level, ultimately, and make a difference on the leadership side. Um, I think on the other side of things, when we do community development, and I mentioned some of the issues around that, we are starting to focus, and we did this before the last few months, but it's becoming more uh, visible and more um, identifiable how important it is on the identity of some of these neighborhoods that we're working in. So, for example, in Harlem, we just closed on a fairly large development where, with our partner, the National Urban League, uh, right in central Harlem on 125th Street. And we're going to house the headquarters for the National Urban League, as well as a civil rights museum in that building. Um, and on, on the upper floors, it'll be 170 units of, of extremely low income housing that folks can live in central Harlem. Um, so we have a cultural use. We have a commercial use that are very keyed in to the history and to the current community that Harlem is made of. And we also have a housing uh, plan that really identifies the need for people who live in the community to stay in the community. Um, similarly, we're about to close on a large affordable 
housing development in the South Bronx across the river that will house the hip hop museum. Um, the Bronx is the home and of the of the hip hop movement. It was born out of a, a building in the Bronx. It started in the Bronx, and the hip hop museum will be the first of its kind, make a home in the Bronx, and above it will be 540 units of permanently affordable housing, um, with a lot of work done on the on the river there. So there'll be a big open space and a community identity. And those are examples of not only the housing sort of, you know, being built and sort of leading the development, but the idea of of creating around the housing uh, cultural uses that are important to the identity of those communities and are meaningful to the identity of those communities. And I think give um, folks a reason to be proud, not only of the housing being built, but of the development that's being done in those in those neighborhoods. Ron, I mean, those are such great examples and, and uh, you know, really underscore the role that affordable housing and community development can play. And you know, just, just thinking ahead, uh, you know, as we come out of this, uh, as we come out of COVID and, and, and uh, this economic, the health and economic challenges, what role do you see affordable housing and community development playing in that uh, recovery? Yeah, I think that's... Um... It's really important to to think about, especially in places like New York City, where there's a you know an evolved industry around affordable housing. It's it's it really is a a business line. There are billions of dollars spent on community development and affordable housing, um, and it's a public. It really is an evolved public private partnership that has um, worked incredibly well, and the economic stimulus around the industry itself and around the creation of mixed income workforce and affordable housing and obviously the ancillary community development that occurs around that uh, is tremendous. Um, the government investment in an affordable housing uh, development generally is is one dollar for every four or five dollars of private sector or federal stimulus that's put in. So the leverage on city and state investment in affordable housing is enormous. And what that does is it really creates an opportunity for economic and job stimulus. Um, in the environment we're headed into where there's a lot of unemployment, the job stimulus is going to be incredibly important. And I think that affordable housing can be one of the areas that leads the city itself um, and maybe other parts of the country as well out of this malaise and this job loss that we've seen. Um, we don't expect there to be huge amounts of new development in New York City, market rate development in the next year. There'll be some, but there won't be anywhere near what has been done in the past 10 or so years. Um, that's gonna have an impact on, on jobs and, and other um, uh, ancillary economic benefits that come out of real estate development. Um, you asked earlier about the difference between now and the other economic um, recessionary periods. I think the thing that I remember about the other periods is that affordable housing and the crash in the in the crash of the of the late eighties, um, even in in the um, 9-11 uh, slowdown, affordable housing sort of brought us out of those uh, real estate doldrums. Affordable housing never stopped. Lenders, investors, developers always were interested in building affordable housing. The government was there. There was no market issues around affordable housing. It's a necessity. And the 
and the uh, development uh, was was really a job creator and a job savior uh, through all those periods of time. And what I'm hoping, we saw that New York City cut its capital budget by hundreds of millions of dollars, but is still is still looking to close on a, a fair amount of affordable housing over the next you know year. Um, I'm hoping that we can use um, affordable housing and community development to bring us out of this, what seems to be this recession or economic uh, malaise and create um, the job opportunities that we've been, um, that, that we've been known to do and that we've brought to a lot of the communities and that are incredibly important to those communities um, over the next couple of years as we work our way out of, uh, out of the economic problems we're going to see. Oh, Ron, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.